Welcome to 52 Minutes with Paul Rudy, an opportunity to learn about people in our area in a unique one-on-one format. Our host is someone who has spent his entire life growing up, attending school, and creating a highly successful business of his own in our local community. Please join us for the next 52 minutes as we settle in for another enlightening visit with today's guest. Here is our host, Paul Rudy. Hello and welcome to Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes With. Today I have the honor to spend 52 minutes with Dr. Bruce Wellman, MD, one of the smartest fellows I know. Dr. Wellman has a Surgical and Clinical Pathology Board certification with a subspecialty certification in transfusion medicine and blood banking at Carl Foundation Hospital. He's also the Assistant Medical Director of Pathology and Laboratory Services, Medical Director of Transfusion, Coagulation, and Apheresis. He's also the Assistant Medical Director at the Mississippi Valley Regional Blood Center, Community Blood Services, Illinois. Dr. Wellman, thanks for joining me today for Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes with Dr. Bruce Wellman. Um, Boy, I know your background pretty well, but we're going to get into it because you've really had a fascinating background. Um, I always like to go back because that kind of starts connecting the the dots for me of why people think and the way they do, why they act the way they do, why they do what they do. Um, So first we're going to go back a little bit of memory lane. Um, before you even came to Champaign-Urbana, um, you got your undergraduate degree where? Uh, thanks for having me on, Paul. Yeah, I went to college at the University of Michigan and graduated in 70 and then went to medical school and graduated in 74 from the University of Michigan Medical School. And from there, where'd we end up? Well, at, in medical school, I took a health profession scholarship from the military, so I did my internship and residency in the military, unfortunately, in Hawaii, in Honolulu for five years. it was We were in a war zone in 1974, but only for six months. So t- tell me about the impact of going from medical school, now we're um, in the military, from a training standpoint. Um, kind of where did you start pointing yourself, and what did the fact that you were in the military. How did that, as you look back, impact where you are today? Well, I had an interest in pathology in my senior year of medical school, and in the military, they, uh, I started as an internal medicine physician, and I did that for a year, but they offered residency programs, and the pathology department was very attractive. It had a very good staff at the time, and it was something I was interested in. So they recruited me into the program uh, that began in 1975, and for the next four years, I did pathology training uh, in anatomic and clinical pathology. I always wonder how people decide in their specialty or their area of practice uh, in medicine. Is that some now? As a child, did you know you wanted to be an MD? No, I think in high school I was pretty decent in science, and I had some role models. Uh, in my family that uh, I had a physician uncle who was somebody I thought had had a lot had it together and so uh, it seemed just something I would pursue and I was able to get through the uh, get into college get through the science curriculum without a problem I got into medical school and so there was never any barriers or any right turns or left turns in pursuing that and then when I got into medical school I really enjoyed just about everything that was uh, offered from a scientific standpoint, and I enjoyed learning things that I could use to help other people understand what's going on with themselves, and uh, also try always try to look at it from the patient standpoint as to what it, what is it that they're going through as they're investigating their problems or issues, and then also healthy people. What are they what are they dealing with, and what 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 new understandings could I hope potentially help them with? And from that military perspective, is that a different, that has to be a much different learning mechanism. You're doing things you have to do faster, well, uh, maybe with less information. I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I have to believe that's different than just a classical uh, medical clinic or hospital. Right. I think in large training programs, they have a long academic culture with long-lived, long-career physicians, leaders, and established uh, hierarchies and stuff like that. And the military is a lot more fluid because the military staff at that time, uh, after there was a significant draft of physicians during the Vietnam War, and then some of the physicians got specialty trained and went into, into the military in what was called the Berry Plan. 
Well, by 74, 75, those people were e- reaching the end, and the military was transitioning to a more established faculty. But in that transition, it was an opportunity to actually take on a lot more responsibility for uh, teaching and providing clinical services. Is it the kind of thing where you, you're forced to learn a little faster? I think so. I think the responsibility, you, weren't all, you didn't always have accessible faculty to give you their uh, guidance and input, and uh, you had to learn pretty quick uh, and keep learning. Is that where the idea of triage, when I think of triage, of course, I think of MASH, you know, from, from my childhood watching MASH and thinking of triage, you have limited resources, uh, you can't control how many people are coming through at any time. Is Does that develop a certain way of thinking? Well, I think you have to manage your time really well because on in the laboratory in particular, we receive what comes. Um, in the clinical side also, your clinics are pretty much typically always filled. So you have to be able to get through a certain workload every day. And in the laboratory, it's the same way. Um, you, you know, there's more, there's some things that are immediate that need to be dealt with right away. And there are other things that can be put in a more regular production line mentality where you line the work up and you finish it as it, as its turns come up. And if you don't mind, I normally start out with where people even grew up. Where, where did you grow up? Outside of Detroit in a suburb, uh, just outside of the Detroit city limit. I guess that explains the University of Michigan thing, because I, I saw a scowl on Ed Bond's face when you <laughs> said you went to University of Michigan. Well, it was Something's real, diehard, Ed. It was a real treat coming here in 1981, because that was right after Post Schembechler and goal at Gary Moeller, and there was not a lot of love for this. And as I've, I've uh, told many people, it was kind of interesting. Being from the University of Michigan, University of Michigan here in 1981 was like... Uh, People said, "Oh, you're from the University of Michigan. How could you, how could you ever go there?" And I'm thinking, "Well, I didn't know what there was a problem." <laughs> <laughs> and so you grew up at, uh, outside of Detroit. How many siblings? I had uh, two brothers and a sister. Okay, and tell me about mom and dad just briefly. Well, my father was an accountant. My mother was a teacher. Okay. Well, you get right to the point, Bruce. Yep. <laughs> and. Uh, were your parents kind of the strict parents, the education no. pushers? What kind of, no, what they, kind of childhood? They, they were, they, they, you know, provided structure. My dad was pretty busy, and my mom was pretty busy, and we, you know, basically got fed and housed and sent to school. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then uh, after the military, where where did you go from there? So at, I was in uh, Hawaii for five years, and then I went to San Antonio for two and was on uh, a faculty in it. A residency teaching program there. Still, um, it was in the military where I developed a, r- a real interest in blood banking and transfusion medicine on top of surgical pathology and, and the other parts of the laboratory. And I continued that at, at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. And uh, in the spring of 81, we were looking to come back to the Midwest. And I got, I uh, came to Champaign-Urbana and worked at Mercy Hospital at that time. Uh, for an independent pathologist. Take me back, though, to the educational component. Did you enjoy that, the teaching part of the profession? Yes, very very much. I mean, sitting with the residents and, and helping them, you know, get, get an understanding on how to approach diagnostic issues in both surgical pathology and, you know, and develop a service instinct or service ethic because that's what you do in a laboratory. You're basically serving other physicians and through them the patients. And... I think communication and, and and communication of your knowledge, listening to the the other components of the delivery system was very important and learning how you can best serve uh, and provide services. C- kind of give me a concept of how many people were kind of under your command uh, at that port, at that part of your life. Well, we had we had 12 residents and I was uh, over the residency program. I had to write officer efficiency reports for any of you ex-military people out there. And that was a learning experience, uh, but uh, we had 12 residents. There were uh, faculty was maybe seven or eight, uh, and we had a very large laboratory in a, in a hospital that had four or 500 beds. Was there a certain part of that where you learned some things maybe you might not have learned? I mean, did it did the fact that you're now you're teaching it make you a better uh, pathologist? Um, did it it kind of expand your horizon. Hey, there's more than just looking at lab reports. There's there's a real 
business side component to this and a people side? Well, I, I've thought about that, and I think probably my personality or my one of my driving interests is understanding how things work and how they go wrong. And I think I've applied that to different parts of my career, at least here in Champaign-Urbana, just with the way I approach things. I look at, I do the empiric observations. You go back and look at facts and literature about how things work. And then you, and then once you acquire that knowledge, you, you attempt to, in an educational uh, standpoint, you attempt to share that with the, the residents and, and get them started on their own pathway of learning and holding them accountable for learning stuff in a timely way and understanding basic um, algorithms and diagnosis, if it were. Because I think a lot of what you do in medicine is you, you have a certain, when, when you're presented with a certain situation or clinical complaint or clinical situation, there's possibilities. Not all possible, all the possibilities you have to, you can't consider everything. And so you have to start going immediately towards what, where the algorithm takes you based upon what it looks like, what test results show, and then make people think through how, how you get to the end of an algorithm and make a decision. Because, you know, we can write reports that basically don't give answers, or you can give a report that combines clinical information and the pathology inputs and stuff like that and say, well, this this provides you this information. Do you think there's some people in medicine that are just interested in, and curious and lifelong learning and, and learning more and more as time goes on? Or do you think some of them just say as long as they get the... It, it, well, I guess what I'm saying is you seem to be naturally curious and never... You, I've known you a long time. You don't stop. I mean, I know our conversations on the phone when we're discussing COVID, we're going to get in part of my purpose today just so people know where I'm ultimately going with this is um, I have an immense respect for Dr. Bruce Wellman, and, but yeah, I understand. He's a little bit cynical. Uh, he and I are, have some similar personality traits, and so I think maybe that's why we enjoy each other. Um, but you seem to have this natural curiosity. Does that help or hurt? Oh, I well, it's, it makes things interesting. I mean, because every time you come in during the day, you find you can find something to to explore. And there's never a shortage of some of new things, right? I mean, COVID is just a string of things that you've dealt with in your career. Right. That's correct. Um, before we get there, so you end up in Mercy Hospital, where all four of my right. children, all four were born. Dr. Larry Lane, you knew Dr. Lane. I think you did. And uh, how long did you stay there, roughly? Uh, I was there until the spring of 85. Okay. So you, you put some time in there. And uh, then uh, the environment, I, I like the opportunity when I was a offered an opportunity to go to Carl to do surgical pathology and have a primary clinical pathology interest in transfusion and blood banking. So they were large enough and had enough volume so that I was able to uh, focus my knowledge and my responsibility in, in a couple areas, which is, again, you can learn deeper. And just for simple people like me, we could all probably, most people could say, oh, I understand what a pathologist does, but kind of on a day-to-day, -day, or how would you put it to a lay people, sort of what a pathologist does if you have just a paragraph or so? Is there any way to do that? Well, basically, we use, we, we provide services in interpreting um, samples that are acquired from patients. I mean, whether it's a surgical biopsy of some kind, a uh, resection of a organ, we do the examination and issue the pathology summaries. We, you know, we have a broad, you know, at Carl, we're doing 1.4, 1.5 million tests a year in the clinical laboratory. And there is a, you know, the subspecialties in the laboratory that that you need to deal with. There's point of care testing out near the patient. There's uh, basically what we call chemistry, hematology, coagulation uh, areas, microbiology, immuno immunochemistry, um, molecular pathology, all all have uh, diagnostic services that they provide through testing. And then setting up the test, overseeing the test, which required to be a licensed laboratory, to have a, a qualified professional a pathologist or somebody with similar qualifications, overseeing it and being responsible for the quality of the service, the timeliness of the service, uh, the development of new services. Um, so... 
you know, when you see a pathology report or a laboratory report, there's typically a physician behind there that's reviewed the policies and technology and the uh, process to get results into the laboratory information system, which is another whole pathology subspecialty area, how you use information, how you get information to the patient and how you use it. Uh, so those are some of the things we get involved in. And is there any, uh, it's going to sound strange, sadness to that role? I mean, do you sometimes see the test result and think, oh, my gosh, this person probably isn't going to live much longer? <laughs> uh, all the time. I mean, I didn't mean to laugh. But no, I mean, I mean, you see it all the time. But well, I mean, you do you do have those thoughts, whether a young person is, has a significant problem or especially someone in a community like this that you know, you can see that. And uh, you just, there's always empathy associated with that. Um with that experience, you don't want to see bad things, but that's in business. We're in, we may be somewhat jaded because all the healthy stuff we don't see. Right. The 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 minutes the the interactions that aren't life threatening, that are outside of our purview, you don't see. We see a lot of normal laboratory tests, but a pathologist typically gets involved in the abnormal ones. So you're you're not seeing a thousand normal CBCs. You might be seeing three or four smears out of that number on a day that people that have significant disease. So the same thing too with surgical pathology. You can see a lot of biopsies that are really aren't significant and they answer the question because they're looking for something and nothing's there and that's an important piece of information. On the other hand, you find things that are gonna cause problems and some of them are curable and some of them not so much. I always wondered if you're looking for, you might have the pathology lab report uh, for a targeted reason. Uh, this just popped in my brain. Do you ever Say, wait, that, they're clear of that, but we notice something else, or is it so specific that it's that nothing else could even come into it? Uh, the reason I ask that is I have a client of mine and a friend of mine who happened to go to Mayo Clinic for one thing, and having done this scan, they found out he was in the very early stages of pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And if not for that screening for something else, he probably wouldn't be alive. Yeah, that, that's a phenomenon we see quite often in medicine. As far as pathology goes, I think it's more common in imaging. Okay. We can find, you know, un un what we call unexpected findings. But typically, if you got a bump, there's only a differential diagnosis of the bump wherever it is. And so, you know, that's, and you can find things that are low frequency along when you do a lot of specimens. So you'll see some unusual variance, but it typically has to cause a bump. Do you get a little, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, maybe it's a, just a psychological necessity, to get a little bit numb, and the reason I ask that is, you know, my father-in-law, Dr. Bill Cooper, who was an oral maxillofacial surgeon, I just remember one time he showed me his notebook of motorcycle crashes where he would repair their face, and I'm thinking, how do you even deal with that? And I just, there's, there's the, there is a downside of being an MD at all different levels. That is, a lot of times you're dealing in just bad news. How, how do we, how do you guys deal with this, and ladies deal with this? Well, I... I think if you get filtered out if you can't. Does I mean, that happen? Have you seen that happen? I've seen people get tired of that. I mean, some of the high-risk areas, uh, ICU, uh, people that in oncology or hematology have a lot of empathy for them that see difficult cases. And, and other, other physicians, uh, you know, have, have different responses. So I think we're, you know, I think you're selected to do that. Uh, you self-select. If you if you if you if you can't handle that, what when I was in training, they said what you can't do in medicine is sympathize, which means emotionally get to the level of feeling for every time you see something bad, you're feeling that level of anxiety. You can empathize and understand that the anxiety is there, and basically makes you want to, you know, keep doing what you can to do it accurately and help the person and make sure you're correct so you don't give them misinformation, which, you know, certainly is damaging. But I think, I think in general you want to, you have to have some empathy to, to, do, to do this. If you don't, I think you're missing a little bit. If you don't feel something when you see something unfortunate, that, that, that's just my view. I mean, imagine some people can basically draw a wall and, and don't and deal with it that way. I, I, just I a little tend, harder, people. Well, and and maybe maybe that's the way they deal with it. Yeah. Well, I'm talking with Dr. Bruce Wellman. I'll be back with Paul Rudy's 52 minutes today. As I said, I'm spending 52 wonderful minutes with Dr. Bruce Wellman. 
Welcome back to Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes with Dr. Bruce Wellman. Well, Dr. Wellman, who we're kind of friends, I would guess, to say it's safe to say, so I'm probably going to say Bruce sometime. I don't, I just want people to know I'm being respectful, but there's some friendship here as well. Um, so you, you end up in Carl, and then tell me about your kind of your journey from that transition from Mercy to Carl, and then kind of a timeline of where you are today. Well, uh, first of all, Carl's been an amazing place for me. Um, it pro- has provided a great combination of the ability to specialize and also be stay integrated into the more general clinical laboratory. But from a larger standpoint, as I'll point out, I've had some other experiences. So I came to Carl in March of uh, 1985. Um, I was... Uh, put in charge of the laboratory in 19, late 86, 87, because I was, anyway, so I got to be in that role, so got involved in, beyond just my specialty, I was basically management and leadership in a a physician group practice. Um, With that experience and planning for facilities, technology, and stuff like that, um, apparently did a good enough job. I had an opportunity to serve on multiple boards, the Foundation Board, the Health Alliance Board, during the next 10 to 12 years. In 1995, I got elected to the Board of Governors at Carl, which at that time was six physicians, and uh, there were two physicians elected each year. And uh, in 97, I was chairman of the board, um, again, I'm never sought any of these positions. In I was fact, just about I, to ask. I tried you, to. Did you I was, envision that? I I've never envisioned that. I was kind of a reticent leader, but apparently that wasn't. I couldn't be reticent enough. They still chose <laughs> select me to move into that role. Do you, is there something about your personality and your view and your way of thinking? I mean, we're only speculating that maybe added something to a board that might have been missing. Or Curi- at least com- compliment it. Curiosity. Curiosity. I, I keep circling back to that because the more I think about you and our conversation in the past, it just seemed to be a. I, I like to person. understand why things are the way they are, especially if you're going to change them. What happens when you, when you. Is there ever happen where you just can't put the pieces together of why things are? They just are what they are? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the stuff that keeps us up at night. Yeah, I know. I said, why the heck is it this way? No. I mean, it, you can, understanding why they are, you have to pick the pieces you can change. You know, things are don't seem to be changeable. You can't keep banging your head against the wall and pursuing something that isn't going isn't gonna to happen. So those roles provided that learning experience. There were certain things that were possible and certain things that weren't. And I grab it, you know, I tried to filter out the ones that we really could change that would make an improvement. But you can't do that unless you really understand the problem. I'm very data-driven from the standpoint of understanding how and why things happen. I do a lot of utilization management, and I always try to understand why before anybody. You just point out a picture, well, there's a difference between these two groups or these two people and why they do things. You can't make a decision that one is good, one is bad, one needs to change, one doesn't, until you understand exactly why there's a difference. You know, some things are, again, some things are correctable by resources, others are correctable by behavior change, and you just don't know that until you dig into it. And it, and it sounds like it's kind of a role you enjoy. It's been, it's been amazing. I mean, you know, there have been some, some stressful moments, <laughs> but uh, overall it's been a, a wonderful expansion of, my knowledge and experience. And by answering questions and looking at questions and by talking about things, you basically learn, you know, what, how to, how to approach it, how to approach things in the future. Like I can go on and on about topics that I've dealt with and taught because I put, got, went through the process and I understand them. And whenever a situation arrives, you use that experience to evaluate the next situation. Was it a pretty short learning curve to start the beginning, the understanding of there's the medical side, but now there's the actual business side and, yeah, the, uh, and, and the practical and, side of medicine. And so there was learning, but you have to understand you don't do things in isolation. The higher you get in an organization, it's more and more about the group of people that you're surrounded by to do stuff. I, I couldn't do anything without a lot of good people that were providing me with input and, you know, and then trying to structure that information so you could make changes, you know, was something that we worked together to do. And you've probably come across wherever, I'm not 
picking Carl specific. Some people can do that. Some people can't. <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of a, a that was nod. a that yeah. was a shrug. <laughs> that was a shrug. shrug. I'll, I'll translate that. One. I could, that's probably the only stuff you know that I can translate. That shrug. Um, and then where do you where did you go? Well, after so, that, and uh, so organization was going through some uh, financial challenges, and there was uh, unrest. And I stepped in as interim CEO in '99, became permanent CEO sometime of Carl Physician the Carl Clinic. Um, in 2021, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm wrong, Nin- 1999. Okay. Um, and then I took that role until for, until 2001 and uh, settled in to be the permanent CEO after a search and an unsuccessful onboarding of a six-month CEO role. So you got the default role. I know. I'm, <laughs> I was left. I was the only one left. And did that take you predominantly out of medicine? I stayed engaged in in blood banking, transfusion, medicine, all throughout the whole thing. I did did get involved in the local donor center, the Champaign County Blood Bank at the time, that's located right in front of Mercy Hospital in 1982, and I became, I was assistant to a senior uh, hematologist from Christie, John Schmale, and when he retired, I took over that leadership role, I think it was the late 90s. So I was a medical director of the local donor service and integrating the donor service with the transfusion activities in the area, in particular at Mercy and Carl, uh, was a very wonderful opportunity because we could do some things to promote efficiency and streamline things uh, that couldn't be happen, couldn't work unless you had a single, you know, a person who was familiar intimately with both sides of the equation, both donor acquisition and transfusion. As you look back, which part of your career, you're still in it, but which part would you say if you had one favorite, the practicing teaching side uh, as an MD or the more of the business side of the medicine? Well, I was trained as a physician and I gravitate towards the transfusion medicine side and, and the science around that as being the, my prim- primary focus, at least it has been for last six years or more. But, you know, the the governance side, I think physician or large group governance is incredibly important. And organizations thrive or fail based upon their governance structures. And their governance structures have to have good processes. They have to have good selection of board members. The board members need to be informed and advise CEO. CEO executes strategy and policy and, and oversees the other activities. That board is a very critical thing, and I think people in general don't understand the role of governance. Yeah, I think that's so many times, a lot of boards are perfunctory in business world, but you're saying in your world, if it was that, it would be a disaster. It's critical. So they they have to be true true. thinkers. I think it's true generally across the board. I I think that's fair. I think our, you know, I think all our uh, elected leadership could uh, really benefit from understanding governance. Got it. So, because we only have fifty-two minutes, normally I, I'm generally Bruce. I'm more interested in a person's personal life and as well as their business and life. But part of the reason I wanted to have you on today, as you know, is to talk about from your perspective, uh, COVID nineteen and where we've been, where we are. You know, so many things are unsettled. People hear so many things. And Dr. Wellman's my go-to, you know, when I'll, I'll ask, and this isn't the question yet, like, do these mask things really work? Are they really effective? And we talked over lunch about that, and I liked your answer. So so it's January going into February. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so it's January going into February. We have this, at least to me, and I think to many people, had never heard of it before. Uh, first it was coronavirus, or I guess some people call it the Wuhan virus, but the coronavirus, and then lately it seems to, seems to be agreed upon as COVID-19, and I don't know what that's all about, but maybe, maybe you'll get to that. Um, when you first heard that word and started to get an inkling that something's going on out there, because as you told me at lunch, you've gone from one epidemic to another throughout your career, and uh, of course all those probably give you a certain way of thinking at the same time. What was your initial take on that? Wait. Okay. Get information. I mean, there are all sorts of things. 
you know, we had sort of in 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 December of 2019, we were sort of getting something's going on in China. In January of 2019, something was really going on in China, and we weren't really clear what it was. The Chinese by then had shared the the viral genetic map and and other things. We didn't really have a good idea clinically of what's going on. And then you know, then the world uh, in February saw all the shutdowns that were occurring, is particularly in China and in the in the east, in South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and other areas as this disease seemed to spread. And so you're thinking, well, okay, it's a respiratory virus. What are the characteristics of respiratory viruses? You know, we were getting, again, initial reports of doubling rates that were incredibly fast and high mortality rates. And Did you ever question those or just took them at, you know? I, just, I didn't know. I mean, right, that's, right. that's the pro. The larger issue here is we're starting from ground zero with a new virus that has some characteristics that we haven't seen before. Everybody was trying to extrapolate from known viruses, some of which has been reliable and other stuff that hit this virus has been different. And so, you know, all that was emerging. It's hard It's hard to even think as we're going through this, you know, what you're going to do. My initial impression was this was going to end up to be a bad flu as a respiratory virus. And it may not have the characteristics of seasonality, but in generally it was attacking seem to attack the upper respiratory and lower respiratory sim, uh, systems. Okay, and then you then we kept finding out more and more stuff that it was doing to the body. Um, and so, my again, my first thing, well, oh my gosh, I hope this doesn't affect the blood supply. <laughs> and, you know, and you do the research and talking to uh, good or contacts in the blood, uh, blood industry, blood service industry, you know, it really wasn't evidence of that, and we looked very carefully in February and March for any signals of that. And epidemiologically, as it turned out, as a, to be a coronavirus, which we can talk about, it didn't seem like it was going to because we've never had a respiratory virus that's been a significant issue from blood safety. And we've had other coronaviruses, so yes. a, this is a is this the it's not so, the second one. It must no, have been so more than that. So for I don't know from thousands of years ago. We've had coronaviruses. Coronaviruses are broadly distributed in the animal kingdom. Uh, we've had some human epidemics in the far distance past that probably were coronavirus and were serious. More recently, our experience from coronavirus begins in, you know, when we identify it uh, what in animals in the early 1900s and then in the 1960s with the advent of electron microscopy, we saw these particles that everybody's seen, the cross-section of it, it's a circle with little all sorts of spikes coming out, so it was called a crown. And so there, the humans had, there were four known versions. Actually, we test for them today in our respiratory pathogen panels where we look at 16 or 18 different uh, in, uh, infectious agents when a person comes into the hospital with a respiratory illness. So uh, we knew we had four of them. We also then, well, we looked at it. As soon as we saw the pictures from China and everything, it was a coronavirus, you can tell that. Then you think of SARS, the severe uh, adult respiratory syndrome. Um, so we think of SARS, and that came and went. And so what was different about this, this one seemed to be behaving differently. And then you had the Middle Eastern respiratory virus, MERS, and, you know, six, eight years later, all of these are animal vectors that jumped to humans. And that one got extinguished fairly quickly. And, again, this one just kept growing. So there was something different about it. Uh, but so the coronaviruses have been with us a while. Uh, and then, you know, the, the question of where it came from, that's another 10-minute right, discussion. Right, right. Um, so then we're into March. Uh, we've got a pretty well-characterized virologically. We're seeing the rapid expansion of the infections in the population. Uh, testing's coming along. Um, uh, and so I was kind of quipped that, um, this is a, a triumph of technology over clinical medicine because we were able to develop a test before we understand the disease. Is so, that good or bad? Let's, well, it's causing issues. But I, I, it was just the way things have been totally okay. reversed. I mean, into, into my history, we in, got involved in transfusion medicine in the 70s, and we've had the evolution of hepatitis B virus, which was first identified clinically, then early serologic and structurally 
and then antibody tests and going along, then antigen tests, and then eventually uh, PCR, R, DNA, DNA, RNA tests, RNA testing to detect it. And then about in 81, we had HIV. We basically had four years before we had a, a test for that. Can you imagine? Yeah. So HIV, we did four years. Oh, my God, four years. You know, we got this test in two months. Really? And so, so then we characterized the disease clinically and knew a lot about it and how it presented and what it did. And then we got a test for it, okay? And then we've perfected the tests more and more. Well, then came along HTLV-1, 3, which are threats to the blood supply like HIV and hepatitis B. We had uh, hepatitis C. Then all get now more rapidly defined as our technology was was evolving. West Nile virus, <laughs> uh, Zika virus, um, and other, you know, and, and a number of other viruses sprung up. Dengue we worried about for a while. All of those we had clinical track records of for things. Now this new, the new virus, we didn't really understand the whole clinical um, picture at the time while well, we had a test to detect it. We had a test to detect its RNA. The test, I'll just say this more than once, the test is not a measure of infectivity. And so the test that we developed was basically a test, have you had the virus? And if applied to people who are symptomatic, it's a great test. We don't really, we're, we're using it for reasons other than what it was uh, developed for. The screening of populations to do contract tracing, for example, the pre-employment or pre-admission screenings. The test has a characteristic that it stays positive way after you're infectious which leads us to have, like the, I think there was a New York Times article that was pointing out that, you know, a lot of people with the PCR positivities aren't infectious. Well, that's been obvious for months. But yet they're still getting tested. <coughs> yet they're still getting tested uh, maybe multiple times, and they're still within this window where it's still going to show a positive, but maybe by that point there's no, they're not infectious. The the, stand, the gold right? standard is being able to be generate infectious viral particles, and that's by through viral culture. And those facilities are not very easily, there's not a lot of capacity in those facilities right now. And so we know, best we know is that most people, if you start with a positive PCR and or symptoms, you're probably not infectious after eight or 10 days. Okay. If you're critic, pretty sick, we have found virus out to maybe 17 days and severely ill people who were tested out that far. I don't yet know, I don't really have a large asymptomatic population that's been tested out. I mean, there always could be an outlier in medicine. We don't know it. But in general, all the current recommendations and the charts and what they're basing recommendations are say that after about 10 days from the onset of symptoms, for example, you're not infectious. And repeat testing is positive in 50% or more. The closer you are to that 10 day, if you're day 14, you have a 40, 50% chance or more of being positive. We have people that are positive out now 100 days. On and, and so off. So if there's, there's more and frequent it, testing then, then there is going to make the numbers look like it, as far as how many people well, are implying it that de- it's. It depends. Yeah, it'll increase the number of positive tests you have, but you really need to look at cases, which are unique cases. And that's what you get from the county. All right, we're going to get back to this with Dr. Bruce Wellman. You're listening to Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes. We'll be back after this next commercial. Welcome back to Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes with Dr. Bruce Wellman. Um, we did, where we left off was, we're, of course, talking about COVID and kind of from your initial reaction where we are today. We've talked about testing. We've talked about some of the maybe downsides of testing, if there is one. Those weren't your words. Those are my words. Um, I open the newspaper and I see, oh, they got this magic saliva test. Almost, for a lay person, you're thinking, wow, if they can do that, and 15 minutes later was my impression. Now, maybe I just misread it or my, maybe I'm mixing articles. It seemed like, how, how could this not basically put an end to this problem? Naively, admittedly, um, is the fact. So we have this positivity issue, which doesn't mean you're infectious. So that could be causing alarms where we ought not be alarmed or maybe we just shouldn't be doing that um where are we today with this thing we're we're obviously a lot more knowledgeable i i take it but there seems to be 
major overreactions one way or another. Well, okay, so let's, let's finish a little bit more in the testing. Okay. So we have a test that has a long tail of positivity far beyond when you're infectious. So the role of testing is, I mean, testing is not virucidal. Everybody thinks more testing is better. More testing is only better if you can address the positives in a timely manner. If, the, if those who are positive will follow the prescribed uh, interventions, which is isolation and avoiding, avoidance of social interaction. Which college kids are really good at. Um, and so it's a system. And so you have to have timely results. And you have to, so you have to have a signet, the resources that are appropriate for the level of testing you're prescribing. Do we have that? No. U.S.-wide or not no. just specific to our town, U.S.-wide? No. We couldn't do what we wanted to do if we wanted to. Well, we we have to define what we want to first. I okay. mean, uh, so that's the problem. And does it want to, is that defined by your test? Or is there something else, that your, your your goals, Your what's your goal? So so the testing uh, today, you know, the fun, the gold standard is the PCR. The saliva test is a PCR test. It is not a point-of-care test. It takes hours to finish. Um, the rapidity with which you can do a test depends upon the resources that you bring to bear. If you have a whole bunch of machinery that's automated and equipment, stuff like that, you're going to have a short turnaround time. If you have a fixed amount of capacity, like I mean, we have only have you know a certain level of capacity at Carl, and you get more specimens in, then you either... You have to triage the specimens, and some people have have delays. I think it's very important, personally, to have a laboratory that's able to get results back, positive or negative, within 24 hours, if not 12. About half of our, about the median time last week for us was 11 hours. But we have a tail because we have some triage that we have to do out to about 23 hours. But at some points, we were 36 to 40 hours when we got a whole lot of testing that was basically tested driven by both public health, uh, some uh, clusters of cases in the surrounding areas, and the um, state mandates for testing. Um, so all that goes together. Well, there's a limited number of machines in the country. We can't buy new. Right now, we could, if we ordered one, it'd be months and months and months before we got one. The reagents that we use, we can modify some of that depending upon the methodology used. But at the end of the day, the final steps are all pretty much the same that are PCR. And the turnaround time is critical. We do 800,000 tests a day in the United States, and a couple of weeks ago, turnaround time was 48 hours, 72 hours, if not longer in many areas, which is basically a wasted test, in my opinion. So that's in my opinion. So, so I'm pretty much focused on whatever testing systems we set up clinically. We take care of the sick patients. We take care of the pre-op patients so we can keep them getting their services. We'll... Uh, work to, you know, work with nursing homes and other people in critical areas that need the testing. Um, and then there's an unlimited demand by the public health folks for testing. And we, we can't take an unlimited number of tests and still fulfill our clinical mission. So so where does that leave us? Well, that, that leaves us is that, once again, remember when I said I'm focused on implementation, how the heck are we going to do that? When these, when these prescriptions come out, they ripple through the communities and, you know, you have to, have to step back and say, what can we actually do? It'd be very nice if everybody would get up every day and had a, right. had a test that they could take and prove, and prove them right. But just think about it. There is a, two or three tests that are relatively good for screening, the antigen tests. You know, they, they can be done at home. They are pregnancy kit-like testing systems. Or it's just an individual card that you put your your swab or something and in I, it. And I think of Abbott Labs, the right. one they're talking about. But just think about it, Paul. How many people in the United States are there? How do you distribute the test kits? How do you provide them all with swabs? Even if they would do them, you know, how do we know they're going to follow through and actually do the tests? There's no way to manage that. And if they do the tests and it's positive, maybe and they and think, maybe well, they, maybe that one's not maybe positive. They, maybe, maybe they use more than one test and maybe that's why I think what would you need tell me how many millions hundreds of millions hundreds of, of tests, hundreds and of then you need a distribution channel you'd have to give them resources and training 
all the other stuff. So this idea. Now, do you focus? Well, that's fractured fairy tales. Do you, do you focus on the high risk populations? Possibly, but unfortunately, the antigen tests in their package insert says it's only good for people with symptoms. So the people that are taking the antigen test, which I think is a reasonable test for screening, you're going against what it's recommended by the FDA to be used for. And it is a little less sensitive than the PCR test. But in, you know, when you're in a crisis situation, you do the best you can. And so I, it, one of the things, that it is a little, little, little less sensitive, and so it may get you closer to testing you for infectivity because it's people that have higher levels of RNA that are more associated with active viral particles in the first 10 days or so after exposure. If you're beyond that, we don't know. We haven't done this. I mean, we have a huge, huge population studies need to be done of the people. I look at our drive-throughs and our, we, we have categories of, in our drive-through of people coming in for pre-ops. They have a very low incidence. We have people coming in with symptoms that have a significant incidence of being positive. positive. So the clinical history before you test has a lot to do with the likelihood that the test being a true positive or a false positive or a false negative. Finally, the one good thing about the PCR test is very unlikely to get a false positive. If it's positive, there was viral RNA, viral RNA there if the specimen wasn't mixed up. Okay. So we're probably expecting a lot of things that aren't going to happen. I mean, there are just certain realities to life where even if you can't implement what might be a good idea. Right. Limited resources, logistics, too many things have to go together too fast, and you can't just turn a switch on and they all happen. Right. And, kind of, I mean, so in order to implement the best use of the test, you'd have a have to have a broad array of contact tracing. You'd have to have, you know, I've always been very skeptical of anything that relies on the public to do uh, behavioral changes for the public to that will improve their health. Well, right. I think there's pretty good <laughs> we, we have a lot of evidence out there that there's a subset of the population that is refractory to such interventions. And you know, including myself at times. Of course, so, human nature. So I think I think we're we're it's it's very difficult in a disease that needs to be uh, have mo- be handled through behavior modification as a primary intervention to get in a standard way to approach it. And that involves time, right? And uh, so this isn't going. We're not going to wake up tomorrow and. Unless there's a vaccine we wake up with tomorrow. Other than that, there's no miracle. It's good to do as much testing as right. we can if we're doing it intelligently and with a goal in mind. But it seems like so much of this, we're just doing stuff without a goal in mind. Why do I feel that way? Because it's true. Uh, in the United States, are you know, another like in England, they they try to base their decisions on evidence and then have group consensus prior to making these decisions. Well, there's an idea. I know. That just isn't part of our system. In the United States, there's this, the FDA had a saying, the av- absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So you could never prove a negative, right? And so they kept it basically as a, a principle that they've applied. Which they've kind of abandoned Yeah, my my my, my, uh, my my interpretation of that right now, in, in the United States of America, in the absence of evidence, we do everything. And so we're throwing all sorts of stuff at the wall. And some of it will ultimately be effective. We'll have debates for years over what was effective or not. There's a, it's a complex matrix of culture, of, of different populations, of respect for authority, which has been somewhat challenging in the United States over the last 20 years as we've changed our culture. You know, everybody, everybody who doesn't believe something doubts it. All I can say is I think the, the basic things we know is distancing works. You asked about masks. I think masks are a good idea when you're within six feet of somebody and having a conversation. This virus doesn't walk, walking by people outdoors without a mask. The level, the way it's infected is there's a cloud that's created through a conversation, and the crowd's got larger droplets that stay within six feet of you, that stay in the air for as little as 15 minutes before they drop, and then an aerosol component. The dose of virus in the aerosol component is minimal, and that may spread around a room if there's no air movement. If there's air movement, there's no real aerosol threat. So as you walk through the cloud around you and people are talking, I'm always looking at distance. I'm looking if I'm indoors or outdoors. I'm looking if I'm in a ventilated room or not ventilated room. And, you know, you wear a mask predominantly to reduce your contribution to that 
an air air environment. Aerome, I guess the university would call it, right? Like I don't every, know. Everything's That's a biome, so <laughs> the atmosphere-ome. Yeah, aerome. <laughs> so I, you, just be aware of that. People who live together probably can't avoid it, and the main driver of cases today are cohabitants, whether it's families or people that roommates that share a room. Um, and, you know, what a contact that, that is defined as 15 minutes talking within six, having a six, 15 minute contact with somebody within six feet without a mask, both of you. That's a contact. If it's less than that, we don't even, public health doesn't even consider them a contact. So this, you have to, excuse me, I'm burping. Um, you have to be aware of your environment and make decisions on what level of risk you want to have. I'm not against mats. So we're going to fight this. This isn't going away tomorrow, and I think everybody knows that. But uh, absent a vaccine, we'll, we'll be wrestling with this for a long time. It is very likely it's going to be with us for a while. And where do you weigh on, I had to ask, like K through 12, should they be in school in your opinion? <laughs> and you don't have to answer that. I mean, it's just an opinion. Well, there's, there are reason. There are very strong. This is a microcosm of our larger society. There's a very strong reason to open up. As you and I talked, healthcare is sixty percent funded by government. If the initial goal was not to shut down the healthcare system or reduce its capacity because we were preventing a surge, we've basically defunded government significantly through the loss of revenue and and ta- potential tax tax base. That'll all come out in your health care in a year or so. There will be significant challenges for government to continue without significant borrowing to fund the health care and any government program beyond that time period. And K-12 is the same as a microcosm of that larger issue. What's going to happen to the children in the absence of education? What happens to their parents when they don't have access to time, the, the access to the coverage that allows them to pursue careers and provide economic support for their families? There is a disease implication, and there there will be cases. We can't ever we don't seem to be able to agree on what level of risk we ought to be taking. And we never get rid of risk; we just transform it. Right. We, we choose we, one over the other, or more of one well, than the other. Well, unfortunately, I don't think we're choosing. I think there's no no democratic or consensus process. We're getting individuals Mandates. given the variation in in environments that have been created in the United States. Right or wrong is defined by what your goals are. So if you want an open state, you're you're basically um, pushing to open the economy and accept accept the outcome. If you want to, to minimize cases, you're suppressing by severe lockdowns and restrictions, and your goal can be accomplished by that method at a cost of you know what you're losing economically and psychologically and all the other complications that are going to occur from shutdowns and limiting activity. Well, thank you. I wish I had another 52 minutes, Ed, uh, but I don't. But I'm, it's making me think that maybe in a month or six weeks we get back to this and we'll get to part two. But I've been spending 52 uh, wonderful minutes with Dr. Bruce Wellman, and uh, I'll be back in a couple more weeks with another Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes.